today is Doris Kearns Goodwin, author of Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln helped the North win the Civil War, but was cut down in April 1865. What if Booth had missed? We'll ask this question and others when we return on Civil War Talk Radio. Have you let your website go stale? Wish you didn't have to wait for your web developer to return your call when you want to update content? You don't have to. Now you can easily and instantly manage your own website content using affordable Avalar technology. Avalar is a website development and hosting company that provides turnkey internet solutions for companies like yours that need to stay focused on core business. Avalar gives you the power to control your website and make updates and additions in real time without having to learn HTML or other complicated programming tools. Websites powered by Avalar feature capabilities that attract more customers and enhance relationships with existing customers. Avalar offers a multitude of leading-edge solutions, including lead generation and referral tracking, shopping carts and payment processing, membership management, and search engine optimization, to name a few. Take advantage of the full power of the Internet using Avalar technology at www.avalar.com. That's A-V-A-L-A-R.com. Vitality is a natural expression of health, success, and fulfillment. And yet it's rare to meet people bubbling with vitality. That's because most of us push ourselves too hard. And when we trigger the internal alarms that tell us to change our diets, attitudes, or activities, we ignore them. Allowing outside pressures to override our internal alarms undermines our health, sabotages our success, and limits our potential. If you're ready to reclaim your natural vitality, to begin living a life you love, visit thevitalyou.com. You're listening to World Talk Radio, where the world comes to talk. To speak with our show hosts or guests during the live show, call us toll-free in North America, 888-514-2100. Everywhere else, call 001-858-268-3068. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Our guest today is Doris Kearns Goodwin, author of Team of Rivals, The Political Genius of Abraham Lincoln, winner of the 2006 Lincoln Prize. Uh, Doris, that is uh, certainly a high honor there to win the Lincoln Prize. There have been some outstanding books uh, that that have done so. One of them, I believe, was David Donald's biography, Lincoln, in 1995. Uh, and I just thought I'd ask if you've seen uh, uh, your neighbor, uh, David Donald. Oh, lately. no, in fact, more than seen him. When I first started this book ten years ago, he lives in Lincoln, on Lincoln Road, which is so amazing. Yeah. And we live in Concord in the very next town. So I called him up, and he invited me over to his house, and he has this fantastic library in his house, um, a whole walls of which are Lincoln materials. And he was so generous, just showing me everything he had, telling me about Thurlow Weed's diary, you know, all the primary stuff that I eventually would learn about. And I was so green at that point. And um, I have continued to be friendly with him. We have dinner with him on occasion. I just talked to him yesterday, actually. He's working on a biography now of John Quincy Adams and is a wonderful man. But, you know, I think it's part of that, and you know this as well, being part of the Lincoln community. There's something about these scholars who have studied Lincoln for much of their life that, they seem to have taken on some of his characteristics because they're so generous and so willing to share material and, and really welcome somebody else into their ranks rather than feeling 
a sense of competition with them. So it's just been a wonderful experience. It's one of the reasons why I hate to think of not doing Lincoln anymore if I can't figure out another aspect because I don't want to lose these guys. Well, it, it, it really is a, a great community of scholars, and uh, I the be privilege of having uh, David as my graduate advisor. Oh, Harvard. did you really? Oh, that's I, I wonderful. Did. And I, I do recall that fabulous library that he has. Uh, he would often have the graduate students over and uh, just share conversation and give us extra copies of books that he'd been sent by publishers that he wasn't oh, going to keep. that's wonderful. And, no, he's just a terrific man. Uh, certainly he is. And uh, indeed, throughout the entire Lincoln world, one experiences that uh, people are very generous and and helpful. At the same time, let let me ask you this question. Um, Sometimes there is trouble in the Lincoln world, particularly about 12 years ago. uh, There there were a series of accusations uh, aimed originally at Stephen Oates, who wrote the biography of Lincoln, that he had taken material from Benjamin Thomas and others. And this really stirred up uh, considerable discord among among people. And to this day, there are still some uh, authors who, who think others are, are using material too close to, uh, to that of other people or not citing it properly. In part, there are many people who are not professional historians or who have never written a book before but are just drawn to Lincoln and they don't necessarily know the canons of professional research and citation, and uh, sometimes they enthusiastically overquote someone else. What I'm getting at here is that this is a, a problem I, I find a challenge when I'm writing about Abraham Lincoln. There's been so much written, and I've read enough, that I wonder sometimes, as I finish a sentence now, did I read that somewhere ten years ago? Oh, you're so right. I mean, How do you avoid I, that? I mean... What what I had to be, you know, triply careful was is precisely because of what you say, is wherever there was a primary source, I mean, that's what I tried to use. And, you know, as it turned out, quoting from the letters, quoting from the diaries, gives an immediacy that's so much better even than trying to paraphrase it or to, you know, or to, to write a sentence that sort of is around the subject you're trying to deal with. And so I just read every letter I could read, read every diary entry I could find and just use them as, you know, I would say in almost every other sentence, it's something coming from something from the time. And it was a learning process to do that. And it means it's hard because sometimes the the structure of the quote, you have to be careful of whether or not it fits the narrative flow of the sentence, you know, and sometimes the spelling is off because that's the way they did it and that can become, you know, clumsy to look at. But I think in the end, it just gives a, an immediacy to the, um, to the work and also does prevent you from having to worry about, you know, whether or not this is too reminiscent of something else that somebody did. And, and I guess for me on the Lincoln book, what made it easier in a way was because even though there have been thousands of books on Lincoln, you know, there haven't been that many biographies on Seward or Stanton or Chase or Bates. And so going back to all of their original sources allowed me to know that, for example, Bates had an unpublished diary that hadn't really been used, and, and Seward had 5,000 papers in his family archives, many of which had not even been used in the Seward biographies. And Chase's daughter's letters to her fiancé and then husband had been mined only in some smaller biographies. So all of them gave insights into Lincoln, 
and at least I knew these are my sources. <laughs> They're not really my sources, but I felt comfortable that they hadn't been used a million times before. Out of all those cabinet members whose, whose papers or diaries you read, did one emerge as your favorite? No question it was Seward. You know, and what I can't figure out is was it his personality? I think that's part of it. I mean, he was so much of a man of appetite. He reminded me of Winston Churchill. I mean, he loved to drink as Churchill did. He loved to smoke. He took his snuff. He had dinner parties in the 1850s where Southerners and Northerners would gather around, and he'd serve them so much food and so much wine that they'd end up mellow, they said, with the, with the purple of the grape. But also it may have been that very early on in the process of starting this book, I went to his house in Auburn, New York, and his house that he lived in all his life with his wife is now a private museum, and it never left the Seward family. So it really makes you feel like you're walking through the time when he was there. The books he read are on the shelf. The notes on the books are there. The little chair that he loved to sit in, which had a place for his cigars and a place for his drink and a place for all of his books is there. And the clothes that his wife and his daughter and children wore are on the mannequins in the spring and the summer. It's one of the best little museums. And I think because I saw it early on and then started reading all the Seward family letters, I felt like I knew those people. So he did emerge. And then I think the idea that he had been the chief rival and losing to Lincoln seemed like such an irrecoverable disappointment. Uh, I think, as you know, 10,000 people were outside his house in Auburn ready to celebrate. The champagne was already stocked in the restaurants. And then came the news on the third ballot that Lincoln had won, seemingly an irrecoverable disappointment. And yet, yet, he was somehow able, when he first gets into the administration, thinking he's going to control Lincoln, learning pretty soon that he can't, to become his great ally, his great friend. And Lincoln loved nothing more than going to his house at night and sitting with his legs up at Lafayette Park across from the White House and talking about everything else other than the war. Well, that, that is amazing how Lincoln could inspire loyalty like that in the people he defeated. Absolutely. Uh, you include the story in, in your book of the first inaugural when uh, Lincoln doesn't know what to do with his hat. Right. <laughs> and Stephen Douglas, his his rival throughout his entire life, really, then, you know, just takes that awkward moment, presumably, by holding the hat. But um, he had that ability, which, you know, would be so good for many of us to absorb, to just, here is the present, there's the future, and, you know, if something hurt me in the past, as he would say, I've just got to put it behind me because I can do better than that with these people now. And it did turn out to his credit and the country's credit that he was able to do that. You had the uh, Lincoln story. You have many good Lincoln stories in the book. Uh, the one he tells of the uh, the person who was uh, dying and wanted to reconcile with an, an old quarrel with a neighbor. Oh, right. <laughs> uh, do I you mean, recall that one? Somehow was able to pull these stories out almost like a computer. I mean, I think if I remember that one, you know, they went through this whole thing about, you know, how he's dying and so he wants to reconcile with him. You know, and then somehow in the end, though, he's saying, now, on the other hand, if he's not dying, you know, we're still going to be enemies like we were before. <laughs> if I get better, the quarrel stands. That's right. Exactly. That's even better. He could say it much better than me. The quarrel still stands. Yeah. Exactly right. Uh, that was a, a, a great story, and it, it you know, it, it does sum up Lincoln's ability both to tell the stories, to uh, to use them to to make his points, but his willingness not to hold a grudge it was was uh, incredible. Considering the way Stanton treated him, for example. Oh, that's right. You know, even I remember the, the story that he told when somebody came to him 
1864, after he had won the Republican nomination for the second term, you know, and said to Lincoln, well, you're sure to win the general election now. The only thing that could prevent it is if Grant takes Richmond before, you know, the Democrats have their convention, which was going to be later that summer. If, they, if he were to take Richmond, he'll be, by acclamation, nominated by the Democratic Party, and he'll win the election. What do you think of that? And then Lincoln says, you know, I've, I feel like I've just been told by the doctor that I have a fatal disease. You know, I don't particularly want to die, but if I'm going to die, that's the disease I'd like to die from. In other <laughs> words, let's take Richmond. So that he could put the important things in front of the lesser important things and somehow be able to get perspective on everything. Now, with this cabinet of, of rivals, as you, you point out in, in your title, Seward and Lincoln got along on a personal basis. Uh, Stanton eventually becomes won over to Lincoln. Uh, Chase, on the other hand, the Secretary of the Treasury, never, uh, he and Lincoln have, have, in some ways, the most interesting relationship. Right. I mean, I think with Chase, he just seemed to have this relentless desire to be president, which was never satisfied, which was sad in a way, as one of his friends said, because he had accomplished so much in his life. I mean, he had been the attorney general, they said, for runaway slaves in Ohio, the governor and senator from Ohio, one of the founders of the Republican Party, a very good secretary of the Treasury under Lincoln, eventually Supreme Court Justice, Chief Justice, but always felt his life was a failure because he never did become president. It's almost as if, as somebody said, it was that will-o'-the-wisp that he saw it all his life. So, as you understand, in 1864, um, he couldn't bear not trying to run even against his boss for that Republican nomination and was spending many months just downplaying Lincoln, criticizing him to his friends, building up a machine from the Treasury Department on his behalf. Lincoln knew everything he was doing, and his friends would understand and come to him and say, what are you doing? Why don't you get rid of him? You know, but I think he understood it was better to have him still in the Treasury doing a good job where he could keep an eye on him. Finally, then, it did become public that Chase was trying to supplant him. Chase finally does resign, um, but doesn't get the nomination, of course. And then, incredibly, after the election, Lincoln appoints him Supreme Court Chief Justice, and his friends come to him and say, how can you do that? Don't you know these mean things he said about you? And he said, I know meaner things he said about me than any of you do, and I'd rather swallow a chair than put him in this post, but he'll be the best man for the rights of the freed slaves. And that was the way he was able to think through, again, that larger issue versus the smaller issue of getting back at this guy who had hurt him. And, and But another Lincoln story that comes to mind there, when, when uh, Chase is in office and, and running for his boss's job behind his back, Lincoln tells a story about the uh, the chin fly, the uh, uh, the fly biting the horse. And right, which just the neighbor says, why don't you not to fly it. off? He says, well, <laughs> the only thing keeping the horse going. Exactly. And so this the, kept Chase going and hopefully doing a good job in the Treasury because he had to keep moving forward, and that's what he was like. No, he, I mean, I did have this feeling that, you know, can you imagine if Lincoln were there today when you think about, you know, the Letterman show or you think about John Stewart, he could be an equal to any of those guys. Hello? Oh, are you still there? I'm still here. Okay, it was fading away for a moment there. Oh, okay. No, I'm, I'm right here. Don't worry. Okay. Yes, we were talking about, about Chase, and you were saying that, that uh, in, in, or Lincoln in today's environment with uh, John Stewart or, or David Letterman, and then your voice, uh, our connection well, faded you know, what out. What I was simply could... saying really was just that, you know, it seems to me that he had that quickness that, you know, people wonder, could this man with this beard, with this stern expression on his face possibly be relevant in today's political world? And I think there's no doubt, you know, if you put him on a point-counterpoint, if you put him on one of those talk shows, 
with that quickness and that humor and that extraordinary ability to draw on human nature to tell his stories, he'd be an absolute star today. At least I'd like to believe that unless, you know, people are really changed in human nature. No, I, I, I wonder. He, he, one of the things that strikes me about Lincoln is the, the modern quality of his rhetoric uh, that, that he spoke in. Uh, well, his two most famous speeches uh, the, that everybody knows, the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural, are both short enough that you can recite them, read them to a class within an hour, and still talk for the next 45 minutes about them. Not like uh, the typical speeches of his time that went on for hours. No, that's right. I mean, he, and and I think that's partly because he was such an extraordinary um, editor of his own work. So that, I mean, that's what Doug Wilson, one of the great Lincoln scholars, has been working on recently is is Lincoln's sword, which is the name he's giving to this book that will be about his editing prowess. But you know, these other speeches that these characters gave that would go on for four hours or six hours, you know, they would draw on history and literature and they just were filled with stuff. And I think what Lincoln was able to do was to start out maybe with something longer, but then just pare it down to its essentials. So you're right, it could be read today, and there's a universality to his language because it's so spare and so beautiful. And it's almost as if those rhythms of Shakespeare and poetry and the Bible, which he read so much as a child, got into his very soul so that they become part of his writing later on. Now, one issue about Lincoln today, though, that's come up, people like Lerone Bennett have made this argument, is that Lincoln was still uh, suffused with the the racial attitudes of his era, which are not those that most people share today. That even though Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation, pushed for the 13th Amendment, helped bring slavery to an end, he still uh, did not envision the kind of diverse society, multicultural society that the United States has today. How do you respond to that argument? Well, there's no question that in the 1850s, when you read what he was saying during the Lincoln-Douglas debates, that he shared a prejudice that was widespread throughout the North, which was, yes, we would like to see slavery undone in the country, but um, there was not an equal willingness for blacks to be made equal to whites. And in all those northern states, I mean, especially in Illinois, there were black codes in Illinois and Ohio that prevented blacks from voting or from sitting on juries, or even in Illinois for a while from even coming into the state anymore. And, you know, if you tried to oppose those, I suppose, since they were supported by such an overwhelming majority, um, you would be way in the minority of any political party. So Lincoln did absorb that kind of prejudice. But I think what happens to him is that as he becomes more aware of black people through his friendship with Frederick Douglass, through his understanding of the courage of a lot of the black soldiers during the Civil War, he begins to grow away from some of those prejudices. And, you know, in the end, Frederick Douglass said he was the first great man he ever spoke with, and he had met with all the abolitionists who did not ever condescend to him and make him feel there was some distinction of color. So I think it wasn't an internal prejudice as much as an ideological one that he was born with. And it would have been so interesting to see what would have happened, you know, had he lived. And the last speech that he gives, he does begin to call for a limited voting rights for black Americans. And that's the speech that John Wilkes Booth hears, where he says he's got to be then undone because that would mean Negro citizenship. So what would have, what would have happened to him as time went by if the country had begun to open up and think about it? It took a hundred years 
before blacks did get the voting rights, before segregation was ended in the South. So Lincoln's worry in the 1850s that the country wasn't ready for equality was rather well-placed, unfortunately. Unfortunately so. We're going to take another short break here on Civil War Talk Radio and return with our guest today, prize-winning historian Doris Kearns Goodwin. We'll be right back on Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> 